you read a novel one chapter at a time, would you be able to summarize what the story is about? If you read that same novel one sentence per day, do you think you would be able to summarize the whole book? If you had a good memory, maybe you might be able to piece things together. What if you read one word from that novel every day? What do you think? Could you reiterate the themes that are present there, the plot? I highly doubt it because if that book is 250 pages long, it would take you over 100 years to read it anyway. So that would be impossible. Consider, though, that we live in a world where we prefer the bite-sized, the mini morsel, the fast-moving news cycle or flipping one post to another. The problem is that we've reduced so many things to such small pieces that they lose all of their significance. Like relationships with our children reduced to a series of scheduled items on our calendar. Or a single emoji serving as a stand-in for an entire conversation that could happen. And God is no exception. Our world has incidentally and even intentionally minimized and miniaturized God's glory and his purposes. Humanity has together, as a rebellious race, attempted to reduce the infinite God to someone powerless and small, impotent, to the point, especially in our Western culture's mind, where he may not even exist at all, in an attempt to trash the meaning of a story and where we fit into it. For this reason, it's uniquely difficult for us as Christians right now to place ourselves in this larger scheme, in the grand narrative of God's story. That's one of the chief benefits of being in these Old Testament narrative stories because if we maintain that big picture of God and his plans, we begin to stand out in our world because we, we believe in and we tell a very, very big and fascinating and rich and eternally meaningful story. Not a two-minute micro-documentary that is forgotten tomorrow. A true story that is long and captivating to those whose eyes the Spirit opens. A story that is deeply meaningful to us and can become even more meaningful to us because it speaks of a real and a glorious God. This morning's text, along with each part of our study in Genesis so far and ahead, is a call for us to pay attention, pay attention to the grandness of God's story, which speaks about, in this case, our true family history in Abraham as we come face to face with Abraham's God, a God who was there thousands of years ago making promises and yet somehow whom we have also in the year 2023 been worshiping right here this morning. Same God. Same continuous story, and as we'll continue from last week, the same unhindered promise. Uh, Straightforward this morning, there's one point per chapter. We're going to try to cover a little bit of ground, but first, our covenant-making God rewards faith, chapter 15. Our covenant-making God rewards faith. You might remember from last week that Abram has just rescued his nephew Lot by battling and conquering a number of northern kings. This is where he encountered that man named Melchizedek who congratulated him and blessed him as an extension of God's blessing on Abram. Chapter 15 begins with the statement, after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, 
your reward shall be very great. He is a shield of protection, the Lord Yahweh for Abram against any of these kings who may come back and retaliate against him. He is a protector for him. And also he has ensured that he is going to reward him in big ways. Still though, Abram who believes God most high and who has followed him all this way has legitimate questions. Now you may have heard Abram's questions in our scripture reading as completely doubt-filled, exasperated, uh, just this outburst. But considering how God responds to Abram as compared to, for example, an increasingly impatient Job, I think Abram is truly wrestling to believe in what God has told him rather than condemning God as a liar. Commentator Bruce Waltke says, complaint and faith are not antithetical. Complaint is based on taking God seriously. God is not intimidated by questions, especially ones that are honest and earnest at seeking God to answer. Abram's first question has to do with this whole promise of his descendants and becoming a great nation. And he says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram is naturally just at a loss. How, Lord? You keep telling me about the reward, these descendants, and a land, but how? Our questions can sound similar to that. How, Lord? How is this going to turn for good? Where's the proof? Can you show me that you really mean it? At this point, it's been at least a few years since God first made the promise to Abram. And it seems in the waiting that he's left to assume that his head servant will become his heir. Which would be more than just a letdown, but would call God's truthfulness into question. It would be shameful for Abram and tragic for Sarah. But at this point, it's all they've got. Then God speaks, and the writer bids us to pay attention. The writer says, and behold, look, the word of the Lord comes to Abram. And God definitively says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number these stars. If you are able to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. He's here to assure Abram again. But we pause and wait to see how Abram responds. More questions, maybe? Deep doubts? Surprisingly, actually, it says this, and Abram believed the Lord. He believed him. He trusted that what he was saying was trustworthy, and he staked his future on it. He heard what God said in his heart, and without any visible proof, he says, this is true. This is as good as done. This is Yahweh we're talking about. I believe the Lord. And then what happens? And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is a huge verse, probably the biggest verse in the entire three chapters that we'll be looking at today, and one of the most significant in all of Scripture. So what are we going to do? We're going to save it for the end. We're going to pass up the last couple bites of dinner so we can dig into a sweet dessert later. 
The reason for that is because the rest of this passage is going to help us understand that one particular verse. It will help explain the weight of how God chooses to treat those who believe in him. Moving from the promise of a son to the promise of son and descendants, God shifts gears to the promise of land to Abram, to which Abram responds with another faith-filled question. He says to him, the Lord first says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he says, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess this land? God's answer this time is a bit more elaborate than showing Abram the stars. He puts Abram to work. He commands him to take a three-year-old heifer, a female goat, and a ram, along with a turtle dove and a pigeon. He instructs Abram to slaughter all these animals and to cut all of them in half down the middle except the ones too small to cut. And after all this hard, bloody work, Abram has to then keep the scavenger birds away until dusk. Why? Why did God ask Abram to do this? It seems very, very odd to us. Because God is is about to do something very significant. The creator is about to make a covenant with Abram. What's a covenant? We use that word a lot, and we we even saw it show up in a broad way in God's covenant with Noah, but it's important for us to know more of what a covenant is and how it was traditionally made in the ancient Near East. At base level, I found this simple enough, one scholar describes a covenant as a relationship with a non-relative that involves obligations and is established through an oath. So a relationship between non-relatives complete with obligations, and sealed with an oath. Covenants were used for various purposes, but they were more personal and more involved than some of our paper contracts are. In fact, they were so serious that the term the writer is about to use when he says God made a covenant is actually God cut a covenant. In that day, in some of the ancient Near East cultures, a solemn agreement was made when people would cut animals in two and walk between them They would pass through them, symbolizing the consequences if they did not uphold their end of the oath. Let us become like these animals if we do not uphold our end of the covenant. Cutting a covenant was more than just shaking on it. It was personal, it was solemn, it was vivid and significant, and in this case was staked upon one's life. In some cases, a suzerain or a ruler would make a treaty or a promise to a lesser person, a vassal, in which they would display that they would not go back on their word by making a covenant. This is the dynamic of what God is doing here. He is the ruler, and he's about to invite Abram into a formalized relationship involving both parties, and that involves certain obligations as a way of showing Abram how it is that God is going to give him this land and how Abram can know that God is going to remain faithful to him. So what happens next? The sun goes down and a deep sleep falls on Abram. Not just sleep, but a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And this is when the Lord begins to speak to him. Oddly though, God starts with the bad news. He tells Abram about the future, that his offspring will be enslaved in a land that's not theirs, but that this will be after Abram is dead and buried. This is a foretelling of Israel's enslavement in Egypt 
for a total of 400 years. But the assurance is they will not stay there. God will deliver them and bring them back to this very land that he has promised to Abram's descendants, the place where the Amorites live, whom God is choosing to be patient with until they are fully saturated with idolatry and wickedness. Remember, God is answering Abram's question, how will I know that I will possess this promised land? Here's how. It's not without difficulty, but here's a window into the future. So, God has explained some things, but what are the obligations, and is there an oath involved? Keeping in mind, Abram is basically under divine anesthesia, so to speak, at this moment. So how can the two parties solidify the cutting or making of a covenant relationship when he's taken off the field? Well, we read in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he identifies the same land by the people living around it. What just happened? The appearance of the smoking fire pot and the torch are symbols of the presence of Yahweh, the almighty creator, as confirmed later on by a pillar of smoke and fire at the exodus and the smoke and the fire around Mount Sinai when Yahweh appeared to them. While Abram is sidelined, Yahweh himself appears and he passes through these carcasses, making a covenant with Abram to give his descendants this specific land, all the while swearing an oath by himself, saying that may he, the living, true creator God, become like these dead animals if he does not fulfill his promise. But God also takes on Abram's side of the deal. Abram's there, but he's not able to pass through the animals. So God takes on full responsibility, not half, not the traditional 50% responsibility of a covenant. He takes all of it on himself in an act of loyal love to Abram. Listen to how author Ray Vanderland describes this scene. What an awesome God we have. What incredible love he has for his creatures. Imagine, imagine the creator of the universe, the holy and righteous God was willing to leave heaven and come down to a nomad's tent in the dusty hot desert of the Negev to express his love for his people. Think of it, almighty God walking through a pool of blood The thought of a human being doing that is, to say the least, unpleasant. Yet God, in all his power and majesty, expressed his love that personally. By participating in that traditional Near Eastern covenant-making ceremony, he made it unavoidably clear to the people of that time, place, and culture what he intended to do. I love you so much, Abraham, God was saying, and I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children, and I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand. Picturing God passing through that gory path between the carcasses of animals helps us recognize the faithfulness of God's commitment. He was willing to express in terms that his chosen people could understand that he would never fail to do what he promised. Has God held back from you? Has he left loopholes? No. 
His word is definitive and his promise is unhindered because God has taken an oath upon his own perfect and unbending faithfulness. Friends, God was not obligated to do any of this. And yet in his great love for Abraham, in understanding his weaknesses, in his commitment to bring blessing to the nations, he sets his promise in the stone of eternity, etching it into his own loyalty and love. He will bring to pass everything he has promised to Abraham, Abram and to us, and nothing will stop him. Point number two, chapter 16. Our covenant-making God overcomes unbelief. Directly after this monumental moment, we are plunged kind of back into the frailty and sinfulness of Abram and Sarai. Moments of faith followed by broken human solutions to God-sized problems. Right away in chapter 16, we're reminded, in case we forgot, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. During this chapter, we find that 10 years has passed since God first called Abram and promised to bless him and to make him a great nation. Clearly, not conceiving during this time has worn on Sarai. This promise came decades after she had probably given up on that idea altogether. She's now in her 70s. This is going nowhere, she thinks. So she proposes her own solution rather than depending on the Lord's reliable word, especially as time wears on. And isn't that familiar to us? We know what that's like when, when time passes and we don't see proof. We're left to either ask big questions or to provide our own solutions. Much like Abraham tried to faithlessly force an outcome in Egypt, we find in Sarah's, Sarai's so-called solution another barrier to God's promise. No child to make the promise come true, leading to this entirely divergent branch of the family tree. We have to understand here that lineage and family descendants are very important in the ancient world. No children means your line, your heritage vanishes when you die. This is why barrenness, a theme in Genesis, is so important and sorrowful, especially because God has attached his promises to offspring. Now, a practice in place in that day to ensure that this family line continues on is the use of a surrogate or a concubine, a woman who in, is, is in this case called a wife for the specific purpose of bearing sons to fulfill the goal of a family's heritage continuing in some form. However, normally the place of that, the first wife remains as a place of preference and privilege, and she could at least in part have a claim in this child as hers by extension or adoption if that makes sense she she that child could be in some terms considered hers now let me be the first to say that god nowhere commends this practice this chapter is very difficult to understand ethically but it's here in part to show that certain things might be culturally normal or acceptable for Abram and Sarai that are contrary to healthy dependence upon God and his word. For example, having children through a surrogate or concubine does not fit God's description of a singular man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his singular wife. Yet here we are in the middle of Sarai's suffering and sin as we're introduced to Hagar, the Egyptian, whom Sarai puts forward as a solution. 
Sarai faults God for having prevented her from bearing children and offers Hagar, her servant, to Abraham so that she may, it says, obtain children by her. Literally build a family. I, I might grab some children. I might, I might have some. Sarai is seeking a way to have her child of promise since apparently Yahweh isn't letting her have that child her, herself. Though we sympathize with her, this is not the way to go. But it's not just Sarai distrusting. Abram isn't innocent either because he listens to Sarai, much like Adam passively takes the fruit from Eve. We're looking at a parable of Eden. And so we read this and kind of brace ourselves for the fallout. Abram takes Hagar as his wife and she conceives. Once this happens, though, it says that Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress. This contempt is not just simply a matter of, look what you did to me, Sarai. This contempt is a shaming bitterness. Hagar suddenly has born to Abram a son who could be an heir to all that Abram has. And Hagar seems to be trying to assert herself above Sarai in position, though legally Sarai's place as the matriarch and mistress over Hagar was supposed to be maintained. It's no wonder then why Sarai gets on Abram's case. What happened, Abram? I gave my servant to you to try to help, and now she is acting like the matriarch. May the Lord judge between you and me, Abram. Abram sets the record straight by entrusting the servant Hagar to Sarai, showing that she is still in a place of authority. With that, Abram assures Sarai that she is not being put out or disregarded and that she hasn't he hasn't chosen to favor Hagar over her. Sarai seizes the opportunity, though, to retaliate as she treats Hagar harshly to the point where Hagar sees no other option but to run. In the interest of time, this, this section is important insofar as Hagar flees but is pursued by someone, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a title used in the Old Testament often seen as not simply an angel but as the presence of God himself. For example, we often forget that it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and that angel of the Lord called himself I Am. So this angel of the Lord can be none other than the presence of God himself appearing to this destitute Egyptian woman who is pregnant with Abram's offspring. He is the one going after her and addressing her in this personal way, along with giving her a similar promise as to Abram, that her offspring will be multiplied. This says less about her and more about the, the mercy of God to the nations outside of Abraham and those who have suffered. In fact, Hagar calls him the God of seeing, for truly here I have seen him who looks after me. God abounds in mercy, even to this Egyptian woman. And this isn't the last time that he comes to her, believe it or not. However, this isn't all good news. Yahweh makes a prophetic proclamation about her child, her son, who will be violent and out of control. The nations will not be blessed through him. He stands as a placeholder for the seed of the serpent, not the seed of the woman. He is in contrast to the child of promise. In fact, Hagar and her lineage in Galatians 4 serve as a metaphoric picture of slavery to the law, where Sarah stands as a picture of freedom brought by the gospel of grace. So Hagar and Ishmael, despite all of the questionable ethics of Sarai and Abram, serve as a diversion from the true hope and promise which will come through another one of Abram's sons, the son of promise. God hasn't chosen 
just to be merciful to Hagar, though, he is also immensely merciful to Sarai. The teens in the room may remember uh, where we spent some time last uh, winter retreat studying Sarai. We spent some time studying her in Hebrews 11, where she is commended for what? Her faith. This woman commended for her faith when she had just blatantly ignored God's promise and took matters into her own hands, blaming Abram, mistreating this servant. Some hero of faith that she is, just like we were inclined to think of Abram when he had Sarah stick out her neck to spare him from the Egyptians. These are sinful and frail people like you and I, but God has mercy and works the miracle of faith in them. Sarai is not done doubting, but they are mixed into these moments of doubt, faith, which God gives to Sarai and through which she eventually trusts him. Sarai is a picture of those who did not deserve God's promises, and yet God in his mercy gave them and kept them and keeps them still. So we are right there with her, undeserving of his promise, but thanks be to God who has not allowed us or our sin to ruin his promises. He remains faithful and is patient with us all along the way. You may wonder why we're trying to get through three chapters today. It probably feels like swallowing a watermelon as it has for me the last week, but it's not just to cover ground. We're not just trying to make progress. It's to hold these big pieces together because the New Testament talks about them both together. Chapter 15 was this mountaintop. Chapter 16 is the valley, and we are coming up to the second mountaintop in in chapter 17, which is separated by 15 years from the last chapter. So after more waiting and waiting and waiting for Abram and Sarai, the Lord appears once again to Abram. Point number three, our covenant-making God calls us into an everlasting covenant. When Abram was 99 years old, God Most High determined that now was the time to end the waiting. One more thing that has to happen, and it's this, that Abram has to be invited to participate in the covenant. He was sidelined earlier for God to show his soul devotion to his promise, whereas now he invites Abram into this steadfast covenant. He appears to Abram once again saying, I am God Almighty, and he calls Abram to walk before him and be blameless. The maker of heaven and earth has graciously appeared to him multiple times and Abram is rightfully undone as he falls on his face. But here this God is speaking to him, blessing him, assuring him that he is with him and this time is calling him further into covenant relationship by committing to walk blamelessly before him. We've heard the promises of nations and land and offspring but listen to how this proclamation in chapter 17 is different. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, which is in direct contrast to what Abram and Sarai have experienced thus far. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and 
to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The deal keeps getting better for Abram because not only has God sworn that Abram, now Abraham, would have descendants and land, but that this covenant would never end and that he would continue to be the God of these people forever. This is no temporary land allotment. This is an eternal relationship. But God doesn't leave Sarai out of the picture either. Sarai, whose name means princess, may have actually been a princess by lineage. She becomes the similar sounding Sarah, a different kind of princess who will be the mother of nations and kings. God will bless her as he will bless Abram, now Abraham. How does Abraham respond. He falls on his face again, but this time he laughs. Me and Sarah, a hundred years old and 90 years old? Why not just bless Ishmael and save all of this trouble? Abraham assumes that the easier route of blessing Ishmael will suffice, but he has underestimated and presumed upon God's power and his wisdom. God says no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God then reassures Abraham that Ishmael has been blessed, and he too will become a great nation, but God's covenant is not with the Ishmaelites. His covenant will be with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to him in about a year. For the first time, Abraham and Sarah are given a timeline and things begin to get real for them. The promised son is coming. God really is going to come through on this, isn't he? But first, God calls Abraham to do something important in order to prove that Abraham intends to keep this covenant and be dedicated to God and God alone. What does God give as a sign, a mark, that Abraham's family would carry with them? He gives them circumcision, the removal of the foreskin of every male eight days old and up. It's a permanent mark on the body. Not just any mark, though, as strange as it may sound, this isn't cruel and unusual punishment. It's intentionally marking this organ of procreation to show that the physical descendants of this man are to be set apart. Circumcision wasn't necessarily new in the ancient world. However, God claims this as the sign that these people and whatever descendants may come from them belong to me. They and their descendants are called to remain true and faithful to the one true and living God. Thus, whether a servant or a foreigner in Abraham's household or one of Abraham's own sons, they are to bear this sign of the covenant in their flesh. And anyone who doesn't do this, who refuses to take God at his word and believe him, shall be cut off from this people because he has broken the covenant. Circumcision becomes a big deal in the future for Israel. It determines who takes God seriously and who does not. It is proof of believing him and trusting him such that you belong in the people of God and are afforded all of the blessings that come through his promise. The everlasting covenant is made concrete in this permanent and painful act. So, it's time for Abraham to decide. Does he go this far? 
does he follow? Does he believe that God will give him a son? What does he do? We shouldn't be surprised because underneath his moments of belief, Abraham does believe, his moments of unbelief, he does believe this God and his word. And in this moment, he is once again faced with, do I stake it all on the word and the promise of God? And he takes Ishmael and every male in his house and himself and all are circumcised that very day as an expression of trust that this covenant-making God is God alone. The question that arises in every sermon is this. What does all of this have to do with us? The answer comes from the two mountaintops. God swearing on his own life that he will ensure his promises and this everlasting covenant that he's calling Abraham into. And all of it comes back to that one statement from chapter 15 because the New Testament talks about it very clearly. Abram believed the Lord. He believed him. And he counted it to him as righteousness. What, is, what does it mean? It means that God counted Abraham as guiltless and right with him simply because he believed the Lord. Church, because this God whom Abraham encountered is the same God that we know our joy and our responsibility in responding to God is the same as Abram, as Abraham. We must believe this God of Abraham who has come to us as Jesus Christ. And while Jesus is nowhere mentioned in this passage, of course, God's covenant points directly to him alone. Ray Vanderland again says of the covenant-making seed in chapter 15 that we saw, God was willing to express in terms his chosen people could understand that he would never fail to do what he promised. And he ultimately fulfilled his promise by giving his own life, his own blood on the cross. Because we look at God's dealings with Abraham as some remote piece of history in a far off land, we often fail to realize that we too are a part of the long line of people with whom God made a covenant on that rocky plain near Hebron. And like those who came before us, we have broken that covenant. When God walked in the dust of the desert and through the blood of the animals Abraham had slaughtered, he was making a promise to all the descendants of Abraham, to everyone in the household of, of faith. When God splashed through the blood, he did it for us. But there's more. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or your unfaithfulness, I will pay the price, said God. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, Almighty God pronounces the death sentence on his son, Jesus Christ. It's in a covenant to Abraham thousands of years ago where God has already set his sights on how to solve the problem of Adam and Eve's sin. If God would pay the price for our unfaithfulness, what would it look like? It would look like the seed of the woman bruised by the seed of the serpent. 
like these animals who shed their blood, like the Son of God, scorned, afflicted, cursed on a cross. Why? Friends, the only answer for God's reasoning in this is that he did this for the praise of his glorious grace and the display of his sheer mercy to sinners like us. The living God had the death of his son planned all along so that we could be brought into a covenant relationship with him. And how beautiful and extreme is this? But wait, chapter 17 creates a problem. I thought that circumcision was the sign of how we get in on the covenant. Why don't Christians emphasize that? And this is where the Apostle Paul interjects. I would just encourage you, take time to study Romans chapter 4 this week. It is rich. We're going to read most of it now because it explains this whole three chapters that we've been through. Is this blessing, this blessing of a promise, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but came through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but when there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it all depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abram, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. This is referring to that specific instance of Sarah, your wife, you will have a son. Or when he considered this, the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of, of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. 
in our many morsel lives, please hear this grand and this glorious story through Jesus Christ and his bloody sacrifice for us breaking covenant with God by simply believing in his death and resurrection for our salvation. We, we are made children of Abraham. We believe and we're baptized, which is the new side of the covenant, not circumcision anymore. Then we rejoice in the fact that we are heirs of the promise and we live lives devoted to the glorious God whom we now know and worship. The nations that were to come from Abraham are the nations and the multitudes of those from every corner of the globe who have trusted in Christ. Those are the nations, which means in spite of centuries passing, God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham, and we are living proof of it. Does that not tell you that he will fulfill his promises to you? Through Jesus Christ, we have access to this promise of an everlasting, an everlasting relationship with him and an everlasting land in the new heavens and new earth. Church, because we believe in him, God's son, God has extended Abraham's promise to us in the greatest unhindered and unbroken promise of all, which is what? I, the creator God, will be their God. I will be your God. The God of Abraham this merciful, powerful, eternal God who makes covenants and who rules the earth is your God. We are reading about the same one, the same merciful God who extended himself to Abram, a no-name man in a far-off land who set his love on him. And he says, I'm going to bless you. Nations are gonna come from you. You are gonna have a land that will be yours forever. Even though there's no seeming way that that can happen. And this God made plans long ago to say, here is how I'm going to make it possible. Here, here is how I love, I love the nursery rhyme that Abraham has many sons. And many sons have Abraham. And I, I'm one of those. I'm one of Abraham's sons. How? Because I believe in the same God that Abraham believed and God has dealt with me the same way he dealt with Abraham. He said, you believe my promise. You believe what I came to do. You are righteous. You are on the best terms with me that you could possibly ever be on. Which is why, so this, this is part two of God's unhindered promise being fulfilled to us. This is how we can count on him. He has done all this beforehand. He has known us. He has come after us. He has sent his son to us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not also fulfill all of his promises to us? We can know for sure because he has said, this covenant is everlasting. I will make sure it happens. Come to me again and again, even in your sin and your failings. Come to me again. The, the covenant stands. I have, I have made sure that it will happen. So here we are, walking through difficulty, wondering, where's God? What's he like? Is he still this way? The answer is yes. His promise is not hindered by anything. So, a final just kind of point to apply. Press on, church. Press on in trusting your covenant-making God, for he will not fail to keep his promises to you. None, none of us who are in his 
family through Abraham. He is not going to fail to keep his promises to you.